For the past few months, my wife and I have been in the market to buy a house. What does it look like? We found one, and we like it. It seems to be kind of the perfect place for us. The arrival, you know. And as we've been going through this process of finding a home, assessing its present and its potential value, negotiating the sale price, and deciding if the benefit of purchasing the house outweighs the risk of the investment, it all kind of reminds me a lot about what we're asked to do as neurologists in the hospital. In the real world, there are people out there whose job it is to assess risk and prognosticate a financial investment. Actuaries. Hello, everybody. I'm Stan Endersky, Ruben's boss. Thank you. You're very kind. This is one of the opening clips from just an awful but a hysterical movie, Along Came Polly, where Ben Stiller plays the role of an insurance actuary. He's the best risk assessment expert in this whole Michigas we call the insurance business. Irving, Vivian, you And it portrays how bitterly methodical and quantitative you can be with your assessment of risk. In the film, Stiller is forced to assess the risk of providing life insurance to a guy. You ever hear of a guy named Leland Van Loo? Um, Leland Van Loo, yeah, yeah, uh, Australian guy, right? Who's um, absolutely the wrong guy to invest in. Oh boy, apparently he's one of these extreme sports nuts. On paper, Van Loo is one of the riskiest sons of <laughs> alive. But if you can pull this thing together... But against Ben Stiller's better judgment, he eventually takes the risk, befriends Van Loo, and offers him a life insurance policy. We cannot sum up a man's life with a bunch of numbers on a computer screen. In medicine, assessing risk is never this comical. And go, do I think this dude is going to die in a few years or not? But there's a strikingly similar role in medicine to the actuaries of the financial world. A role that happens to be served by neurologists. podcast about neurology and medicine and all the fascinating science and history that comes with it. This week on the program, how neurologists may be the actuaries of medicine, neuroprognostication, and outcome prediction after cardiac arrest, what we know, what we don't know, and what we're left with when it's all said and done. Stay with us. I want you to Google actuary. Just do it. I'll give you a second while you look it up. One of the first pages that pops up in your Google search is from beanactuary.org. What is an actuary, it asks. Part superhero, part fortune teller, part trusted advisor. By the end of today's show, we'll hopefully have shown you that the neurologist embodies two of these three roles. And how well we do this, I'll leave to you. Let's start with a fictional case. Ms. Summers is a 57-year-old woman who presented to your ED after having an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Her daughter found her on the kitchen floor for an unknown duration, but remembers having spoken to her before breakfast 30 minutes ago. The patient's daughter called 911, and she began chest compressions to the best of her ability. But she's had no formal training in this. When paramedics arrive, the patient has a pulse, but she's unresponsive. So they intubate her at the scene, and she's brought to your ED. As part of your hospital's protocol, she's cooled to 33 degrees for 24 hours and now has been rewarmed. A head CT is normal on arrival and also at 72 hours later. By now, it's been more than 72 hours since the arrest and you're called to the bedside. You see that she has some pupil reactivity, a weak gag response, but remains unresponsive to verbal or noxious stimuli. And she has intermittent, spontaneous, clonic jerking. What do you think her chances of a meaningful functional recovery are 
and what other information would you like to know? As you think about that, let's discuss some background information. In the United States alone, there are about 350,000 cardiac arrests every year. Approximately one in seven patients will die, either directly or indirectly because of this. Two-thirds of patients will arrest outside the hospital, and generally this is associated with a poorer prognosis. Half of all arrests are unwitnessed, which is also a bad sign. For every 10 patients who arrest outside of a hospital, nine of them won't survive. Predictors of survival with a good functional status, meaning the patient's at least semi-independent at the time of discharge, include the following. A witnessed arrest, arrest in a public setting versus a home or a nursing facility, administration of CPR in the field, the quality of the initial CPR, the initial rhythm being shockable, meaning V-fib or V-tac, and early return of spontaneous circulation. Also, return of consciousness following CPR is a good thing, but who didn't see that one coming? So first things first, given that you're the medical actuary, you have to define your outcome. What are we testing our clinical predicting variables against? In the literature, you'll see a lot of data about what's referred to as a poor neurologic outcome. Now there's no consensus as to what this is exactly. Most often it's a poor cerebral performance category score, CPC. It's just a simple five-point assessment of cognitive disability. A poor outcome often refers to a score of three to five, ranging from severe intellectual disability and dependence on others all the way to brain death. Anything less than a three means that the patient's at least independent with some daily activities. So poor outcome, at least it means that there's severe disability and functional dependence with ADLs, if not coma or death. Then along came Polly, and I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's character said it best. And go, do I think this dude is going to die in a few years or not? Next, as the actuary... When is the best time for you to assess for your predictor of this outcome? This part's highly controversial, and there's no known optimal timing. As I'm sure that you've seen in your own practice, a patient who's comatose one day after a major ICH can have an entirely different clinical course from a patient who's comatose three months after that same hemorrhage. So while you want to get that earlier exam to help you predict how the patient's going to do later, there may be a wide variability in the clinical course of patients with major neurologic injury. Most experts will say, and guidelines will state, that you should interpret your neurologic exam and rely on the electrophysiologic data only after at least 72 hours have passed since a patient was rewarmed. But where did this 72-hour threshold come from? The first and the most obvious reason is to permit all sedation to wear off. Propofol, which is one of the most common anesthetics used in the ICU in these patients, has a biphasic half-life, with an initial half-life lasting about half an hour to 40 minutes, but its terminal half-life can last up to two or three days. Then there's a second reason, which is a little more exciting and also a little more challenging to find in the literature. But if you go back to 1998, there was a natural history study that was published in the journal Resuscitation, including 231 patients who experienced a cardiopulmonary arrest, and they survived. You can find this reference in our show notes. The patients from this study were followed using repeat neurologic exams, imaging, and EEG for up to one year after they arrested. Among their other findings, the investigators outlined the clinical course of neurologic recovery in patients who eventually regained consciousness, and this was about half the cohort. What the investigators found was that, after anoxic brain injury, the brain makes a slow and a gradual recovery, beginning with the brainstem reflexes, followed by a motor response to noxious stimuli, and later return of consciousness, sometimes much later, weeks even. 
But by 72 hours, the brainstem reflexes and most of these other functions, they'll have started to recover if there's to be any return of meaningful neurologic function. So now we use this 72-hour cutoff as our temporal threshold. Alright, so you have your long-term outcome measure, severe intellectual disability and physical dependence or death, and you also know when you should look for your predictor of that outcome, at least 72 hours after a patient's been warmed. But what predictor or predictors are you going to rely on? As the actuary of the intensive care unit, let's think about how you would design a clinical assessment tool that could be used to prognosticate following arrest. Would you want it to be sensitive? Meaning that if a patient did not meet your criteria, then they're likely to do very well. Or would you want it to be specific? Meaning that if a patient did meet your criteria, there's almost no chance that they're going to recover. Well, since the majority of patients who die after successful resuscitation die ultimately because of withdrawal of life-supporting services, most experts prefer a more specific clinical tool, a tool that's going to guarantee them that a patient will do poorly if certain criteria are met, a tool with a false positive rate of 0%. This is crucial because you absolutely do not want to have a tool that will say a patient's going to do poorly and then you withdraw life support only to learn later that the patient could have actually regained consciousness or walked again. But no tool is perfectly specific, so we use a combination of several tools. You've got your clinical exam, which is the least invasive and gives us a lot of data that you can screen for before you get to the second-tier testing. You've got electrophysiologic data, EEG and somatosensory evoked potentials. There are biomarkers in the peripheral blood, and then you've got imaging, so let's briefly chat about each of these tools in your clinical toolkit. You're on call overnight, you're in the ICU, and all you've got in your toolkit right now is your neuro exam. Let's start there. Like I mentioned before, following anoxic brain injury, we know that from natural history data that the brainstem reflexes return first, and they return slowly. Beginning with the pupils, bilaterally absent pupil responses are going to be highly predictive of a poor neurologic outcome. Excluding your pharmacologically dilated pupils, the scopolamine patches, the hypertropium nebulizers, and surgical pupils, once you see that the pupils have become fixed, there's almost no chance that the patient's going to make a good functional recovery. 0% false positive rate, according to the literature. But it's poorly sensitive, on the order of about 20%. So that means if you've been asked to see somebody to assess for a prognostication, 80% of those patients who have pupillary reactivity, they still may have a poor clinical outcome after anoxic brain injury. Moving down the brainstem, you can also check for the corneal response, the fifth and third nerve pathway. I usually don't like to be cruel to my patients here, so I start with a few drops of normal saline onto the cornea, and if I get no response there, I move on to applying a piece of gauze to the cornea, just to see if the patient will blink to that. If you start with the gauze and the patient blinks normally, maybe they wake up later, you could have irreversibly damaged their cornea, so that's no good. But how useful is the corneal response in comparison to the pupillary reflex? I mean, they're both brainstem reflexes, right? Well, it turns out that absent corneals are associated with about a 5% false positive rate, as opposed to 0% for pupillary reactivity. Which means that if you see an absent corneal response, 95% of the time the patient will do poorly. So it's not enough to hang your hat on, but it's still pretty helpful, I think. And it's about as sensitive as the pupillary response, maybe a little bit better, about 30%. The reason, some experts think, 
why it's not as specific as the pupillary response, is that the corneal reflex may be dampened by lingering paralytics, whereas the pupillary response shouldn't be. Moving down the body, as you know, part of your exam is just looking at the patient. What is the patient doing on his or her own? After anoxic injury, as I'm sure that you've seen, some patients will develop myoclonus, usually 10 to 20% of patients. Or worse, they could develop Lance Adams syndrome, which is myoclonus that correlates with epileptiform EEG activity, seen in about 1 to 2% of all patients. And both myoclonus and Lance Adams are traditionally regarded as poor clinical biomarkers, with over half of patients failing to recover. But that means that some proportion could still survive and become independent. Approximately 1 in 10 patients with myoclonus almost fully recover, according to retrospective data. And maybe they'll do alright with aggressive antiepileptic treatment. With the exception of looking for brainstem signs, or observing myoclonus, I think the only other real useful exam finding is how might a patient respond to pain? And this is probably the least useful test in assessing a post-anoxic brain-injured patient, but we should cover it anyway. While it's easiest to apply deep nail bed pressure or sternal rub, in somebody who's comatose or is immobilized from a cervical spine injury or brainstem lesion, you may see a really concerning response to these peripheral stimuli, but the patient may be fully awake and cognitively intact. So what I'll do sometimes is assess for a painful response to supraorbital pressure. And even if the brainstem or the C-spine is devastated, there should be some responsiveness with grimacing or eye closure, as long as the pons or the upper medulla is intact. Now how much of this matters? How useful is this test? After you've allowed for any sedation or neuromuscular junction blocking paralytics to wear off, maybe you've also checked a train of four. This is going to be your most sensitive clinical tool. Studies have shown that a lack of response to noxious stimuli, or an extensor response, this is about 75% sensitive for a poor outcome. But it's not the most specific finding, so maybe you'll consider using it as a screening tool and then moving on to the pupillary or the corneal exams to confirm your suspicion that this patient is just going to have a poor outcome. You've got your exam, but there are other confirmatory tools out there which are also highly specific. Again, the objective in your assessment is specificity and a low false positive rate. If you think someone's going to have a poor prognosis, you'll want to know that with the greatest certainty before support's withdrawn. If we go back to the pre-hypothermia era, the absence of an N20 wave of a short somatosensory evoked potential, or SSEP, was highly specific for a poor neurologic outcome and it was useful as early as 24 hours after anoxic brain injury, with an approximately 0% false positive rate. In the post-hypothermia era, there have only been two case reports of bilateral absent N20 responses in patients who go on to have a good outcome. And it raises the suspicion that, while it's an excellent tool, hypothermia may confound this electrographic response to nerve stimulation. But ultimately, it is a great tool, and it does have a high specificity, and a reasonable sensitivity at about 45%. But it's probably best to wait at least those 72 hours after the patient's been warmed to test it. The EEG is another useful tool in your toolkit. Lack of an EEG background, a flat EEG, is almost as predictive as the absent N20 response. Even during therapeutic hypothermia, 
an unreactive EEG has a 2% false positive rate for predicting a poor neurologic outcome. In addition to that flat background, you could also be seeing status epilepticus, which is also informative. While the electrographic criteria of status has been controversial over the years and kind of subjective to interpret, it's almost universally associated with a poor neurologic outcome. Birth suppression on EEG has also been described as a bad outcome marker. But in many patients, it may improve over time, maybe could respond to antipoleptics, and it's definitely compatible with a good neurologic recovery in some patients, especially if it's treated on the spectrum of the ictal interictal continuum. So experts never recommend using birth suppression as a biomarker in isolation. Okay, let's look back into your toolkit. Most of what we've covered, some might consider very subjective findings. Absent corneal responses could be due to lingering paralytics. A flat EEG could just be low voltage. Birth suppression is not always a bad finding, can be treated. And what if the EMG tech who tested the SSCP was just a bad technician? Some of these findings can be argued as subjective. Luckily for us, there are some absolute and quantifiable biomarkers that you can reach for in your toolkit. In the peripheral blood, you could test for neuron-specific enolase, an S100 calcium binding protein, or S100B. NSE is more frequently reported and has a richer history in the medical literature, so we've got more data on that. But both are reasonable peripheral blood biomarkers of significant neuronal cell death. In the first 24 to 72 hours after cardiac arrest and anoxic brain injury, both of these biomarkers will rise in the blood, and they'll rise to levels that are commensurate with the degree of brain injury. This means that your threshold is going to change from day 1 to day 2 to day 3, and it's going to vary according to the extent of the irreversible brain damage. Some labs will even provide their own thresholds for prognostication, telling you that a level of 40 micrograms per liter of NSE on day 1 has a 0% false positive rate, while it takes only 25 micrograms per liter of NSE on day 3 to give you that same specificity. So definitely check on the internal validity of your local lab, see how their assay compares to other standards, and recognize that even though it's a quantitative tool, one threshold at institution A may not be prognostically equivalent to that same threshold at institution B. So that's basically everything you've got in your toolkit. Let's now return to the case that I presented at the beginning of the show. It was a fictional 57-year-old woman who came to the ED after an out-of-hospital arrest. She was last seen well 30 minutes prior, and she received CPR by her untrained daughter. Paramedics intubated her after finding that she had a pulse, but she was not responsive. She was cooled, and 72 hours later, you're called to examine her, to prognosticate. You reviewed her head CT. It's normal. On exam, she does have some pupil reactivity, a weak gag, but she remains unresponsive to verbal or noxious stimuli, and she's got myoclonus. What do you think? Well, some of these are decent predictors of a good outcome. She's relatively young, she got CPR in the field, she's got a pulse, she was cooled, and she also has brainstem reflexes. But on the other hand, brainstem reflexes being intact won't preclude the possibility of a poor prognosis. And she did receive CPR by an untrained person, so perhaps that's not the best quality and she remains unresponsive and has myoclonus. If we tally up the math here, 
thinking about how only 10% of patients with myoclonus make a meaningful recovery, and how intact brainstem reflexes may still be associated with a poor prognosis 80% of the time. I really couldn't tell you that I feel comfortable voting one way or another. It's not clear to me that this patient's going to do well or do poorly. And we didn't even talk about neuroimaging, but there's almost nothing you can rely on in that department unless you got an MRI within a day or two and you saw widespread restricted diffusion. And even then, you probably would want to rule out non-convulsive status epilepticus. So what do we do in this situation? Well, I think we should try to build a case. We'd need more specificity out of our toolkit. This would be an excellent opportunity to check SSEPs, a routine EEG, or even neuron-specific enolase or S100B. At this point, several days out, we might find that the NSC or the S100B is low, and it doesn't meet the critical threshold that we would associate with a poor prognosis. But an absent N20 response, or unreactive EEG, that would be very, very specific. And together with the myoclonus, I would feel much more confident that our fictional patient's prognosis is unfortunately very poor. However, cases are never actually this simple and clear-cut. As Philip Seymour Hoffman said in Along Came Polly, We cannot sum up a man's life with a bunch of numbers on a computer screen. We all need to look into our hearts. You'll get the NSC and the S100B. They'll be straddling the line of whatever values that could be concerning or could be normal. You'll get the EEG, and it'll be interpreted as burst suppression or maybe non-convulsive status. You'll try to treat with high-dose anticonvulsants for a few days, then slowly wean to see if the EEG normalizes. Or you'll get the SSEP, and there'll be a normal N20 response. But you'll still be left with that comatose patient with an intact brainstem, waiting to see if they're ever going to wake up. More often than not, I found myself in these tougher spots where you have to incorporate a variety of conflicting clinical, laboratory, and physiologic data. You have to package it into a single assessment, and even then, you can't be 100% certain you're correct. More often than not, in a patient who does not regain consciousness after a cardiac arrest, they're going to do poorly. And we don't wait it out because it's emotionally demanding. It's physically invasive to do the things that we need to do to test these patients. And it's challenging, and it's painful to watch as you keep a patient alive with little chance of a meaningful recovery. So, like I said from the beginning of the show, most family members will elect to withdraw support. Hearing from us that there's a poor prognosis, they will give in to this sense of futility, and it gives credence to what we call our self-fulfilling prophecy. This is the brutal irony and the inevitable limitation of our knowledge about prognostication. The evidence, even among prospective studies, is unacceptably poor. If you read the more than 75 studies that exist on neuroprognostication, hardly more than 10% are blinded with respect to predictor evaluation and outcome confirmation. That means that almost 90% of the outcome assessors had some insight into how poor the patients were doing to begin with during that prognostication period, and therefore their assessment could have been entirely compromised. Furthermore, in half the studies, the authors reported an institutional policy regarding treatment suspension and withdrawal of life support precluding evaluation of long-term outcomes, and most likely influenced by these predictive variables we've already established, absent brainstem reflexes, flat EEG, absent N20 responses, and so on. Therefore, those patients would of course have been categorized as having a poor outcome already. They all would have died because of withdrawn support. This notion of the self-fulfilling prophecy, it deserves far more scrutiny than I have time to provide as we near the end of this week's program. 
But if anything, you should take away that, while we have all of these powerfully predictive clinical tools in our toolkit, they may still be limited by our own intrinsic biases. We'll never be perfect. We'll never know the future. It's safer to hedge your bet rather than to just go all in. We are only risk assessors. We're the actuaries of the medical world, not profits. Just actuaries. Part fortune teller. Part trusted advisor. Part superhero. Well, maybe not superhero. Impressive presentation. He's insured. Yeah! Congratulations. Hey, bloody ripper. Love you, son. The Brainways Podcast is produced at a Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Jim Siegler, senior producer. Music for this week's program was courtesy of Swelling, Soft and Furious, Raphael Archangel, Lovira, and Dark Room. Sound effects by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simeone. For more information, please follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Brainwaves Audio or email us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. I'm Jim Sigler for Brainwaves. Thanks for listening.